Live podcast presents History for the Future. Lessons from a Rivonia trialist. This month marks 30 years since Nelson Mandela was released from 27 years in prison. Most of his fellow trialists were released five months earlier in October 1989. In this podcast series, journalist Pippa Green speaks to one of the last two surviving members from that Rivonia trial, Andrew Mlangeni. This is about his life and his role in the liberation struggle. In part one of the series, we heard about Andrew Mlangeni's childhood in the Free State and young adulthood in Soweto, Johannesburg, when the police swooped on 156 political leaders to arrest them and charge them with treason in 1956. He was not one of them. I'm a bedroom boy. I operate from behind. <laughs> I was a person who did not want to hold leading positions in the organization. I helped those who want to become leaders and make sure that they get elected. In part two of this series, we tell how Mlangeni began his military training for the armed struggle and of his extraordinary trip to China, which took him almost across the world. This is journalist Pepper Green narrating and conducting the interview with Mr. Mlangeni. Of the 156 activists arrested in 1956, 92 were eventually charged with treason in the Pretoria High Court in what became known as the Treason Trial. They included leaders such as Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu. The arrest came a year after the Freedom Charter had been adopted in 1955. Broadly, it spelt out a vision for a non-racial social democracy. Andrew Mlangeni, according to his biographer Mandla Matebule, described the Freedom Charter as the Bible that would be used to pursue freedom for all South Africans. In 1954, Mlangeni bought a small house in Dube in Soweto, the same house where I first met him. By then, he had begun working for the Communist Party and the ANC as what he described as a functionary. A functionary is a person who works for the organization and uh, gets paid by the organization. The Communist Party was a function, functionary of the Communist Party. ANC had no money. His day job was to deliver stationery for the company he worked for. I used to deliver every day stationery as a driver. Uh, Pretoria. Pretoria was my area. So I used to go with these people who were going to the, to the synagogue, the treason trialists. I met them several times. On the way, I sometimes I overtake their bus or their bus overtakes me. In 1960, the apartheid government banned the ANC, the SACP and the Pan-Africanist Congress. But the ANC leaders continued to meet secretly. Mlangeni recalls how Helen Sisman, the lone liberal opposition member of parliament, warned the government against such action. Helen Sussman used to warn the government and say, if you ban the ANC, you'll be making a grave, serious mistake because you'll be forcing them to operate from underground. There was some talk of forming a new organization, but the then Minister of Police, Blackie Swart, had already warned that he would ban any similar organization immediately. So there was no point, therefore, in forming another organization because our objectives and the aims for democracy, for fighting for enfranchisement, will not change. We will not change from wanting freedom for our people in our country. We won't change. So there's no point, therefore, 
in trying to form a new organization. No point. When Nelson Mandela first suggested taking up arms in the underground meetings, many of his comrades dismissed the idea. We can't go underground with so many people uh, will be committing suicide. And where are we going to get arms, weapons, to fight such a powerful National Party government? You are crazy, Mandela. So they used to dismiss him. But Mandela, being a very persuasive person, at every meeting of the NEC underground, raised this issue, pestered members, comrades, let us take up arms and fight these people. Being a nuisance and being persuasive, they said, all right, Mandela, we give you permission to form this thing of yours. They called, so they said, from this thing of yours, um, controversies where this be of the nation, MK, in other words, from this thing of yours, but it must not be known publicly that it is the baby, a wing of the ANC. It must not be publicly known, otherwise we'll be in trouble. And so Mandela went to Stanger in what was then Natal to tell Chief Albert Latuli, the president of the ANC, as well as to Durban to inform the Natal Indian Congress, an ally of the party. He also regularly attended meetings of the Communist Party. I won't say he was a member of the Communist Party. He has never said so openly, and I'm going to respect that. But I know his true position. He supported you can draw your own conclusions, mm-hmm. but you won't get it from me whether he was a member of the Communist Party or not. I was probably the first person to be recruited by Mandela into MK. Mandela used to say that to us on Robben Island. He says, Comrade Andrew, you know what? You are the first person I recruited into ANC. I didn't want to believe him. But he said so. I said, well, if he's saying so, I can't deny, he knows. Mlangeni was also among the first to go for military training. One day Mandela took him to the safe house where he was hiding. We didn't go to Lily's Leaf. It was not Lily's Leaf. It was some house uh, in town. (laughs) When we got there, we did (laughs) push-ups. We did push-ups, both of us. Ow. Then thereafter he says, no, that's all right, comrade. I say, why did you want us to meet? Says, I wanted to see how healthy you are, how fit you are. But it was Joe Slovo, leader of the Communist Party, who actually recruited him for military training. For training? Yeah. Where? No, I'm not going to tell you now. Uh, and uh, go for training. This was now in 1961. October, November, somewhere there. But your family must not know. Uh, you go for training, the party is going to take care of your family while you are away. By this time, Langeni had four children, two girls and two younger boys. He was instructed not to tell his family where he was going, but he ignored this. My wife was an active person in the organization. 
She was a politician in her own right. And when the time came nearer for us to leave the country, I took my wife into confidence. And I, I told her the truth. He then had to organize travel documents for three people as well as for himself. Raymond Mklaber, who was from Port Elizabeth and was later charged in the Ravonia trial, Patrick Mtembu, who became a state witness in the trial, and Joe Kabi, who was later assassinated in what was then Rhodesia. He organized false travel documents from what was then the Bechuan Land Protectorate. They all assumed false names. He became Percy Mokwena. Mlangeni was used to going to the country that would soon become Botswana. His in-laws lived in Francistown and he had visited them on a few occasions. For the others, though, it was new territory. In October 1961, John Nkadimen, a prominent trade unionist, drove the trio to Lobatsi, just over the border, and dropped them at a hotel. A chartered plane had been arranged for the next day to Tanzania. They did not stay at the hotel but drank coffee there and then went to look for a place to sleep. As we came out of the hotel that evening, early evening, somebody comes to us, a white fellow. He says, gentlemen, I'm the special branch of Botswana. Can you please accompany me to my office? We went with him, took our suitcases. He says, where are you going? My mother-in-law was in Francistown. So I said, no, we're going to Francistown. What are you going to do in Francistown? I said, well, my friend there comes from PE. He wants to go and buy some cattle and uh, take them over to PE. Who are you? I gave him my name, uh, Percy Mukwena. And you, asking Ray, Ray told him his name. Your papers are saying you are Botswana residents. I said, yes. He was satisfied with me. I mean, I spoke Botswana, I spoke Sutu, uh, and uh, I knew a little bit of Botswana because my mother-in-law was living in, 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 in this thing. And in Francistown, and I said, no, I often come here, I mean, to, to check on my mother-in-law, whose husband has passed away. And anyway, Mpumi's mother grew up in Botswana. We took her there in 1955. When Bantu education was introduced, he said, you'll well, we get better education there. And uh, when he came to in, in interview Raymond, Raymond did not even know his chief. In Botswana, no could he pronounce some of the names in Botswana correctly. He says, Muna, where, where, where do you come from? Raymond said, no, I'm a, I'm a resident of Botswana. But you can hardly, you do, hardly know your chief. You don't know the name of your chief. Tell me the truth. You know, he kept us there for many hours, three to four hours. And at one stage, he searched our suitcases. 
And uh, in my suitcase, he found two letters. One from Mtembu's wife and the other one from uh, Joe Gabby's wife to their husbands. <laughs> these letters, what, what are they doing in your suitcase? Where are these people here in Botswana? Yeah, I said yes. And you are carrying these letters, bringing them to them? I said yes. He just shook his head. At one stage, Raymond asked to go to the bathroom. So this chap took him and showed him the bathroom. When they came back, just out of the blue, before he even took a seat, Raymond says, I come from PE, and we are leaving the country. I said, what's wrong with this man? I felt as if the ground can open and I go in there. Was he speaking in English or something? Yeah, he told this man in English. He said, we are living in the country. So what? He had not consulted me. <laughs> As it happened, Mklaba's sudden exasperated confession turned their fortunes for the better. And this fellow responded by saying, Chaps, why didn't you tell me all the time that we are living in the country? We are living in South Africa. You're not even going to Francis Town. You're going overseas. He was saying, we are going to Ghana. He says, why do you tell me? You have wasted your time. You have wasted my time. He gave us back our things. He gave us back our things. I said, this bravery of this fellow, although it was a mistake, he had not consulted me, saved us. The bravery of Raymond Mutlava saved us, my dear. He then says, chaps, we said, now we have nowhere to sleep. We were very hungry, very hungry. There were no shops open anywhere. The wife had not prepared enough. It was only enough for himself and their daughter. He was married to an Asian, a pretty girl. And he says, I'm married to an Asian, and I don't want uh, to, 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 to know that we are going to sleep here. He told them to leave early in the morning. It was now the 1st of November, 1961. I don't want anybody to see who leave this house. The airstrip is just over there. You go out secretly and uh, you just go and go to the airstrip. Your, 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 you'll get, your flight will come and pick you up there. At such. We told him the time. On Hungary's empty Starbucks. And uh, we did that, slept there, and in the morning opened for us, and we secretly went out uh, to the airstrip. Uh, our plane come, came, and uh, we left. Dad had nothing to eat, but still had a bag of oranges that June, Mlangeni's wife, had given them. They flew nine hours from Lobatsi to Mbeer in Tanzania, and it was only there they were able to get a meal. They'd been told to contact ANC member Franny Jinwala when they arrived in Tanzania. Jinwala, close aide to Oliver Tambo, was later to become the first speaker in the Democratic Parliament. Mlangeni had a phone number. He called her and asked her to fetch them. She says, 
Oh, no, it's impossible. I can't pick you up from where you are. You are in Bea. I'm in Jerusalem. Huh? Now, how do we get to Jerusalem? He says, the weather was bad, raining. The roads were bad. Buses were not moving. Only trains were moving. He says, because buses are not moving, you will have to get into a train. You will travel the whole night. And in the morning, you will meet me at uh, the Dar es Salaam railway station. You will find me there. Jinwala organized fresh travel documents for the group. From Dar, they flew to Ethiopia and then to Ghana. Mlangeni traveled on a Ghanaian passport and Plaba on one from Guinea-Bissau. From Ghana, they flew to Zurich, then to Prague, then to Moscow, and then to Irkutsk. Irkutsk is the border between Soviet Union and, and, and China. The weather was so bad that the flights were suspended for three, four days at that border. They inquired whether we could be flown to Mongolia and then from Mongolia to Peking. But Chinese said, no, those guests of ours from Irkutsk, they must come straight to Peking. There they found Mtembu, Joe Kabi, whom Langeni had organized documents for, and Steve Naidu, also from Natal, but recruited from London where he was studying law, and Wilton Mkwai, who would also be charged in the Ravonia trial. Six altogether. In January the following year, they were divided into two groups. Mlangeni and Naidu went north to a village on the border of North Korea that used to be occupied by the Japanese, the last zone to be liberated in 1945. Chinese uh, volunteers used to mm-hmm. walk and cross the river to go over to North Korea to go and help them fight against uh, South Korea and so on. You can see how far north we were. Very cold. Seven months in a year is just snow. Snow. The highlight of his visit was meeting Mao Zedong. It is recounted in his biography, Backroom Boy, on the first page. The chairman of the Chinese Communist Party arrived one day in August 1962. He had a firm handshake. He looked Mr. Reiti in the face and I did the same trying to be as great a soldier as I could. They were to meet Ma one more time about two months later as they wrapped up their training and joined their other two comrades. Chairman Mao Zedong was disappointed. Terribly disappointed. He says, comrades, you come from so far and your organization is sending only six people for training here in China. You must send her. Hundreds of people, they were used to Cuba sending large numbers of people for training. They were taught how to manufacture transmitters, bombs, how to put up booby traps, more than in the art of guerrilla war. But first of all, for the whole month of November, December, while you're in Peking, they give you the history, they give you lectures on the history of the Communist Party. They give you the history of their struggle, the history how their army was formed. Uh, the people who were in the forefront in taking up arms, 
Mao Tung, how Mao Tung lived in the mountains, from where he wrote some of the books, how people supported him while in the mountains. These are some of the paths on which people who brought him food walked uh, right up to the mountain. We went to that mountain. That was Andrew Blangeni, one of the last two surviving Ravonia trialists. I'm Pippa Green, and in the next part of this podcast series, we will hear how Malangeni traveled back to South Africa in the face of extreme danger. This podcast was researched and compiled by journalist Pippa Green. Additional readings from the book The Backroom Boy, Andrew Malangeni's story, were done by the author of that book, Mantla Matabule. That book is available online via the big retailers and witspress.co.za. The podcast was edited and packaged by me, Jean-Michelle. And for more interesting podcasts, please visit livepodcast.fm and subscribe. History for the future. Lessons from a Ravonia trialist is presented by Live Podcasts. For more of great radio and podcast content, visit livepodcast.fm.